Welcome to episode 7 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with me in the studio is my assistant and producer, Aurora. Hi. And today we're interviewing Dr. Eva Shapi, and she's done some incredible work looking at Lyme disease and particularly biofilm. And the importance of that is if she's able to establish that Lyme disease does indeed create a biofilm, which many of us take uh, on faith because we've seen it act that way. Uh, we'll able to, she'll be able to prove that Lyme disease can indeed be chronic. And as many of you know, the folks over at the researchers, the doctors over at the Infectious Disease Society of America, IDSA, insist that Lyme disease cannot be chronic. So we really uh, want to support Dr. Shapi in her work. But before we get to that, we have one thing to take care of first, and that's today's Lime Ninja Fact. Aurora, take it away. Today's Lime Ninja Fact is ninjas do not own microwaves, stoves, or ovens because revenge is a dish best served cold. Very cold. Being right is often the best revenge, and I think Dr. Shoppy's going to have the last laugh over the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America. So, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit about Dr. Shoppy? Dr. Eva Shoppy is an associate professor, professor of biology and environmental science at New Haven University, who was a cancer researcher at Yale University before she joined the University of New Haven faculty in 2001. The following summer, Shapi became ill with a strange malady. She suffered from insomnia and her motor skills were impaired and constantly dizzy. She experienced chronic nausea. I went through several months of medical tests, she said, but they were all inconclusive. Finally, in desperation, she underwent magnetic resonance in imaging. Physicians still couldn't offer a definitive diagnosis, but they told her she might have Lyme disease. I didn't know anything about Lyme disease, said Shapi, who grew up in Hungary and earned her PhD in genetics at Ivotos Lorand University in Budapest before coming to the United States for postdoctoral training in molecular biology at Yale University School of Medicine. Right now, as an associate professor and university research scholar at the Department of Biology and Environmental Science, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate biology courses, she researches Lyme disease, pathogenic biofilms, antibiotics resistance, and different morphology of Borrelia burgdorferi. Thank you, Aurora. And here's Dr. Shapi. So good morning. I'm glad you could join me. Are you ready to jump right in? Sure. Okay. So first, I'm very curious, and to help people understand you a little bit, is how how did you come to the States, and then how did you end up as at Yale as a cancer researcher? I was I was just finishing up my uh, PhD in Hungary, 
And I was looking for a postdoctoral position, and uh, I was looking everywhere. And uh, one of my friends was here, and and he mentioned that it is it is several uh, positions at Yale. And I applied, and actually I I got one. So that's how I came to the U.S. as a postdoctoral fellow. And after, uh, you know, I stayed because. Uh, of the the project I was working was very very interesting. Obviously, I learned a lot at Yale. Uh, really liked uh, the environment. Uh, I I felt really home because there's so many other international postdocs around me, and it was just a very interesting and very stimulating environment. And that's how I started. And and the the group I started was was cancer research, and I I I actually uh, was very interested in cancer research. At this point, so we, I was working on breast and ovarian cancer uh, over 14 years, almost 15 years. That's incredible. You make getting into Yale sound so easy. <laughs> I, I, I guess it just meant to be. I applied and I got in. <laughs> yes, well, it shows that you're very, uh, we're doing very good work. And what was your doctorate work in? Uh, his name was Barry Kaczynski. Unfortunately, he passed away about uh, at about five to six years ago. He was my mentor. Uh, I learned a lot from him. Fabulous. And then how did you make the transition to Lyme disease? Uh, it, uh, after after I got the postdoctoral position, I, I was one point I was promoted to research scientist position, but I was really difficult to get grant uh, with this position at Yale. So I was looking for a, a professor position, and it one of the close by university, University of New Haven, opened up the position, and I was able to get it. And and when I started at, at the University of New Haven, uh, I, I tried to do my cancer research, but because my teaching responsibilities plus it, it's a very small university, not as much funding, it was very very difficult to continue what what I did at Yale. So I remember I was sitting down with uh, with my dean. She tried to help me, you know, what to do, and he suggested that uh, uh, find something which is locally interested. And unfortunately, at the very same time, I I got Lyme disease. So I felt like, you know, between the between these two advices and having having Lyme disease, this is, would be a very logical logical uh, revenue for me to to continue. I also was very upset that I saw that lots of issues with Lyme disease. I I always saw the only cancer, you know, the cancer uh, research is challenging. I, I fortunately I learned that Lyme disease is even more challenging. And how, what makes it more challenging? Um, I think the lack of funds. Uh, I mean, at, at Yale, of course, it's at Yale. Uh, we, we always had enough money. We had big grants, you know, federal grants, um, some private grants, but the fun, fu- funding was never an issue. We, you know, we, we ordered whatever we, we needed it. Uh, we can do, we could do any experiment. It wasn't really a cost inhibited uh, issue. When I, when I came and we started to, the Lyme disease research, the first thing was, how do I get funds? And university provided me some some small funds, couple of thousand dollars per year, which is you know there's not much for research. Right. And I remember I was, but well, how can I how can I work with couple of thousand dollars? And um, my first idea was to do some uh, co-infection uh, uh, projects because for co-infection projects you go out and collect some ticks, which is which is free, you know, actually, I just your time. 
and uh, and the PCR, uh, the technique we used to detect different uh, pathogens in the ticks, it still wasn't that expensive. I was able to do it with my with my small funds, and and with with doing that, I was able to generate some some data, even present some data, and and get some interest from other other agencies, and now. We're still, unfortunately, struggling to get federal grants or even state grants, but uh, uh, fortunately, several private agencies are available uh, for funds, and that's, that's how we get the money for research right now. And your research right now is particularly with biofilms. Is that yes, correct? And, 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 yes, and, and, and again, this is, this is also, this project came from frustration because uh, uh, when we tried to work with uh, the Lyme disease pathogen called Borrelia, the first question was why why people are still struggling with Lyme disease even after the antibody treatment. So, so we tried to repeat those experiments, which you can see in the literature, and and what we found somehow depends how we how we did the experiment, uh, the results weren't always the same, and we really wanted to know why not. And we started to look at uh, look at the pathogen under microscope after the treatment, and that's when we discovered something that looks different than you know before the treatment, and that's how came came into this whole biofilm idea because we saw something which looked like biofilms from other other species. Now we hear the term biofilm a lot. Can you explain it like to a freshman class what a biofilm is? Sure. Uh, the, the easiest to explain uh, for a freshman class, I can just say, do you know what happens with your shower if you don't clean it? And of course, <laughs> they're going to say, yeah, it gets slimy. Uh, yeah, it's exactly, you have to be very careful about that because you can slip. So that's, that's, the reason it gets slimy because the biofilm forms at the bottom, you know, because the water uh, stay, stays uh, for a while. So the biofilm is a, is a protection uh, of the bacteria is practically is, is uh, think about a colony or aggregates of bacteria which gets together and builds a protection above them. And usually, it's a very slimy protection. Uh, it is it is a carbohydrate protection, and we also discovered that it is not just not just this uh, carbohydrate, but also it has calcium on it. So it's almost like a crust, yes. Yes. And also some other component of the biofilm, a protective layer, which makes it extremely difficult to address it with with uh, different antibiotics. So does this make the Borrelia biofilm different than other types of biofilm that form in the body? That, that's exactly the question we asked about two years ago when we when we started to look at Borrelia biofilm. We, we we really didn't understand why some agents, which works beautifully from other biofilm, it doesn't do anything for Borrelia. And what we believe is, is Borrelia biofilm has probably more layers, more protective layers than other biofilms, and that's exactly what we're studying right now. Try to try to find what else is different about Borrelia biofilm than even other biofilm. Okay, so we're still trying to take a look at that and see exactly what's going on. Yeah, so far what we looked at is the usual suspect, 
and uh, what you find other biofilms. So far, everything we find other biofilms we find in Borrelia, but I I believe maybe something even more. So that's that's right now our big question. Well, I'm excited to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see. So so with that, the other thing uh, I, I read some of your information and you also talked about not only the biofilm, but other forms that the Borrelia takes. Can you talk a little, a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, that's back from 1990s. Mm-hmm. Dr. McDonald, Dr. Bronzo research, when they find that when they, when they expose Borrelia to harsh environment, including antibiotics, uh, it takes up different forms. Uh, they describe first as a cyst form, or the, sometimes they call the round body form. Then there's another form, which they call the L form. L form is when basically they don't have form because it's, it, it, it doesn't have cell walls, so it can take any form. So, and who knows how many more forms Borrelia can take. This Borrelian uh, species, we know now from, from recent studies, it's here for millions of years. So obviously, they figured out how to, how to evade uh, harsh environment. And again, I'm not talking about antibiotics only because, you know, that's, that's uh, what we know antibiotics is only came, come from the 1920s, but any kind of harsh environment. So, so I believe every form has a purpose uh, to, uh, to see uh, if, if the environment is very harsh. Uh, let's say we, we can do that around body forms. If, if it, needs, it needs even more protection, let's put some, some protective layer above us. Uh, I think it's probably even more form we don't even know. i give you one example. We treated Borrelia with bleach, household bleach, the same bleach you have, you have it at home. Right. And you would think it, is, it will be killed, yes? yes? Bleach. We looked at the microscope and we saw some, some looks like almost like a little fragment Still moving around. First, we just thought maybe just you know maybe just the bleach is still moving around, but unfortunately, it looked like the movement is completely had had purpose, and and the movement was against the you know the the the, the flow of the liquid. So we believe it, it it is it is it is some people call it a granular form. They seen in other bacteria, what exactly granular form? Uh, I always imagine granular form as a, like a like a little pod. A spa- you know, you are in a big spaceship and something really bad happened and you have to get out. So you have these little pods and just get out very quickly and leave the spaceship behind. What what could be a pod? I mean, the logical thing is DNA because you want to protect your uh, genetic information. So obviously that still needs to be proven, but that's what I, I'm, I'm thinking that if, if everything goes bad, there's no time to make biofilm, no time to do anything, it's still something that the Borrelia can, can use and escape. So here's an interesting question for somebody who's had Lyme disease and hearing all these different forms that the Borrelia can take. Uh, do you think it's possible to get rid of it once it's inside your body? Everybody asking the same question. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you're telling me about that, you know, all this different form, this, this is the, the space part that you, you believe in. So how can we get rid of it? I do believe that, you know, uh, first of all, I, I personally believe that your immune system will get rid of it at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have human species. We have very strong immune system. 
And I think is is what what we we just have to have the immune system. So I always look at any kind of therapy, it's helping. So for example, if the load is very high, uh, obviously uh, good antimicrobial can bring it down. If you have biofilm, obviously some antibiofilm agent can help you. Uh, but again, uh, Borrelia, Borrelia is very interesting because it, it does, you know, it is it is modulator immune system. I'm sure you heard about that. So obviously we have to work on sometimes in some in some aspects, it's obviously some inflammation going on a uh, lot of times in the patient. So so a good, I think a good physician is sort of looks at it in a very comprehensive way. But that's in the final goal is still how to help the immune system because definitely. It is. I don't know. You can find uh, antimicrobial which can address every single foreign code, including the space uh, little part. But hopefully, if 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 the if a good physician can address that, you know, the whole body. I think I think eventually you can you can get rid of it. It sounds yes. It sounds that way. So I was listening to an interview with uh, a German trained physician. Uh, I think I think he's a psychiatrist, Klinghart, and he of talks. Course. Ab- oh yeah, 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 yeah. And he talks about first of most importantly supporting the immune system in the human being and the detoxification Absolutely. pathways, and then once Absolutely. that's more healthy, then to go after the the bacteria itself. Yeah, I, I heard a lot of studies, you know, that Borrelia can also make those those biotoxins. Yes. And some of those biotoxins can be can can attack your nerves. Obviously, obviously, the whole pain issue and and the whole uh, toxicity issue, and and he definitely, if he's, I heard his lectures, and he he thinks uh, one of the most important thing is is support the body, support support the immune system, because eventually that will take care of the of the infection. So, what finally helped you with Lyme disease? I tried antibiotic, didn't really work. Uh, uh, plus, I'm, I'm very sensitive. A lot of patients probably heard a lot of patients very sensitive to, to antibiotics. So that's why I, I try some herbal, uh, herbal approach. Uh, and, and, and it was very slow. It was, took like good two years, maybe even more, depends on how you count it. And I have to say one point was frustrating because, you know, after one year, you're still not feeling 100%. You're, you're a little bit frustrated. But, uh, eventually, um, a uh, very good diet, uh, light exercise, uh, helping with some herbal uh, approach, uh, detoxification, I believe. I took some in- infrared sauna. I think it really helped me. Uh, I even, um, one point somebody suggested to do some lymphatic mas- massage. I found the practitioner also helped me. So I definitely feel like uh, the reason I recovered because I took took a, a nice, uh, slow a comprehensive approach and and I was patient with my body brilliant and here's an, another question of more p- political and international do you know anybody back home in Hungary who has Lyme disease oh yeah I'm getting oh I'm getting emails at least a couple of times a week Hungarians because some of the word got out that I'm Hungarian so so I'm getting my Hungarian emails and uh, and asking questions uh uh actually for the seminar uh in gen- last january uh my niece actually helped uh, uh some uh, informative seminar to organize it so definitely uh definitely i have my hungarian connection and definitely a huge problem in hungary right now i i actually was very surprised that you, you would think it's a huge problem here 
Mm -hmm. I'm Connecticut, you know, but I live very close. In Europe is at least as much problem, if not more. I was, I was this spring, I was in Germany, Norway, and France, and I was shocked to hear how difficult to get to get help in in those countries. It's really quite interesting. So th- this bacteria, like you say, has been around for millions, if not billions, yeah. of years, and we're now just finding. The, or shining the light on it so we can begin to mm-hmm. see. So many of these chronic diseases that we've had all along with these names like fibromyalgia and et cetera may, may be some version of Lyme, yeah? Maybe. That's Maybe. very possible. Just yeah. Because, you know, when, when when you hear that, you know, they ask you doctors, so why do I have that? And they said, I don't know. That's obviously, obviously uh, raising the question, do we have an infectious agent behind it, whether it is Borrelia or some other infectious agent? I, we don't know yet. I think we right now uh, with new uh, approach, uh, one is something called the metagenomic approach. I don't know if you heard about this. It's an approach when you take a human tissue, a human sample, and you sequence everything what is in it. After you take out the human, obviously, and look at what hap- what left, mm-hmm. uh, what left in the tissue. And use this approach actually in, in for a very interesting disease called Morgellon, Morgellons, which uh, just recently uh, 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 finally realized that it might be some infectious agent behind the disease. The reason I got involved because it's uh, some, uh, some of the li- uh, Morgellon patients also have a positive uh, Borrelia test. Right. So the question was, is it Morgellons do something with Borrelia and... Uh, uh, our group and an Australian group actually proved by by a PCR method that indeed is Borrelia DNA on the Morgellon tissues, and also uh, our group is actually working on some other idea that we might able to find other pathogens on the, in these tissues. Uh, so these new approaches, I believe, it will help us to to find uh, those those uh, those infectious agents which might causing those diseases which we have. We always thought we have no idea why why we have that. Right. And and following up on that, how you mentioned, I've read in some of your research that you use a specific strain of the Borrelia burgdorferi. And how many different strains do you think there are out there? Uh, depends who you ask. Some people said over 200 different Borrelia strains. Uh, I, I had a chance to 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 at least look at sequences uh, for other strains, uh, clinical strains, and uh, what I'm seeing from the sequences, I think, is probably even more. It's def- definitely a lot of different. You know, we always think about the the European strain, the American strain. Uh, it is there is a lot of different strains, and of course, you can ask the question: Are they do are they, are they all infectious? Do they all causing Lyme disease or similar diseases? Uh, we, I think it's a lot to learn. I mean, just just, just recently we, we discovered Borrelia Miyamoto and just the Dr. Lee paper just came out that it is maybe more uh, more prevalent than we, than we thought. So I, I really strongly believe I think it's more more out there. I think we really have to learn more more about you know different Borrelia species. And, and I'm really hoping that, that we start to understand, you know, what those different Borrelia species uh, can cause. Maybe maybe some of them causing, dif- you know, one, one disease, some of them causing different diseases. Right. We don't know yet. Now, and help me understand. So if there, if, 
if you're getting the standard test in your doctor's uh, office, the Western blotter, the ELISA, will the different uh, strains of the bacteria all show up or would those tests miss different strains? How does that work? I mean, for example, the Miyamoto, as actually just, just came out, the Miyamoto will not show up. So, so, uh, and it is just one new strain we have right now. Uh, this is the biggest problem right now. Those, those tests are designed for one, one strain, the famous B31 strain. So all those bands is corresponding to one strain. I don't know if you heard about this. There is a, there's a test uh, lab called IGENX. The, 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 the fact that they actually put two strains into their system already able to diagnose more, more patients. So I'm really hoping that now, uh, now we understand with the new sequencing approach that if there are more strains and hopefully we will be open-minded enough that our test should, should reflect that it is not just one or two strains of Borrelia. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Sometimes the the wheels of the machinery move very slowly. In science, it's extremely slow. Science is very conservative. It's very. I'm actually surprised, you know, how difficult to to even even suggest new ideas. Even suggest. I, I the whole biofilm idea. A couple of years ago, when when we suggested with Dr. McDonald, I mean, I have to say we were ridiculed. Pretty, pretty much ridiculed. Right now, it's a paper came out from the, uh, from John Hopkins, and actually the word biofilm is there from from for Borrelia, which I was I was surprised. I was told several years ago, I would say three three four years ago, that uh, this biofilm I'm describing it is doesn't exist in the body. It is just my laboratory artifact. They said, Ava, I don't know what you're doing. You probably, you're doing something in the lab. That's why that's why you're seeing that. I never seen this in my lab, and uh, we just finished a study, which I'm, I'm actually working to write it up right now. Uh, the study we introduced uh, Borrelia into a mice, and uh, and uh, you know, obviously, the obvious question: uh, Can we find biofilm in the mice? And and guess what? We found it: huge biofilms, huge biofilms. Certain tissue has huge biofilms. And and which does the biofilm have a preference? To outside the biofilm of the Burgdorfia colony have that's a preference that, for different tissue? That's, that's exactly the question we're asking right now. Uh, the experiment is cooking as we speak. It will be done. <laughs> I can't August drag it out 5th. of you, huh? <laughs> August 5th. No, it's, it's, um, the problem, the first study, we only got three tissues. You understand? Yes. That, I mean, now, now uh, the next experiment I told, it is a collaborator we're working, um, Dr. Miller uh, from North, uh, University of North Carolina. I asked her, please give me every single tissues, everything from the mice. I need to, I, everything, so right. everything, whatever you can think of, give it to me, because I need to see where Borrelia goes. So this, this will be groundbreaking research. I really hope. That's, that's uh, again, August 5th, uh, my students actually driving down to North Carolina to pick up the tissues. They want to be there. They want to be sure that everything is collected. It's brilliant. So then, but then the next step, let's go back a little bit into politics. The next step of completing the research is to get it published. And I've, I've started calling publishing the blood sport of science. It's, yes. it's not easy. 
I have I have to say uh, the first I would say almost five years. So I'm I'm, I'm a, you know I'm a young professor who has to publish. Yeah, yes. who have to publish and uh, and uh, a lot of pressure because I have to get through my next promotion and I I'm not able to publish my data every. Uh, some of my data, that was a co-infection data, just, you know, collecting ticks, still doing the PCR because I don't have much money. And I thought that's, that's, you know, everybody would be very interested what I'm finding and I couldn't publish it. They said, what, uh, for example, I'll give you one example, the mycoplasma study. And I know that now people are confirming it. It's back in 2005. I had a beautiful uh, uh, uh paper describing several species of mycoplasma in ticks, very high rate. This paper came back five or six times, rejected, that don't, not even even give me a chance to, to do anything, rejected this. They said it's impossible. Now people are finding it. So uh, I find a high rate of Bartonella, impossible. Paper came out just a year ago. I, I find very high rate for Babesia, too high, too high. Your rate is way too high. Now I can see the paper came out and confirmed it. So, so this is what's so frustrating at this point. I, I, I remember I was like, should I, should I go back to my cancer research? Because right. I was able to publish in my cancer research. Right. And, and finally, I remembered one of the co-infection papers. They put in, in a, this known, uh, you know, it's, it's a journal. It's not a peer-reviewed journal, not really a scientific journal. I said, I said, let's just start to get published. I don't care where it goes. So the first couple of papers, went to, you know, those journals and and very slowly I was able to get into better and better journal. Right now uh, the biofilm paper gets in PLOS one, one of the one of the best journal uh for online uh, online journals. I'm really hoping that the, I can I can follow up, you know, with this with the other paper also in PLOS one. And uh what I'm trying to do right now actually I, I got invited as an editor for a journal and I accept it because I would like to uh, I would like to invite other uh, researchers who are who, who are not able to publish and have them for publication. Of course, it will be peer reviewed. It will you know I'm, I'm, it will go through a very strict peer review process, but it will be very objective. And again, uh, the reason that PLOS PLOS one paper got published because I requested an European editor. Ah, very and, clever. And, 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 and the European, it was, uh, the, the review process was over half year. Uh, we had to do more experiment. It wasn't the easy review process, but one thing about it was very objective and, and very helpful. Actually, the paper became stronger at the end. Very good. So do you think that this pressure to, you know, to move your career, not you personally, but in general in academics, move the career forward? prejudices uh, researchers from leaving kind of what they know will get published and what's already known? Does it just reinforce? Do, do, are we just paving the cow paths? Yeah, I agree. It's, it actually, it is a, couple of, a couple of very interesting commentary came out uh, just the last couple of months about that. Definitely the pressure. Fortunately, University of New Haven is very patient, a small university, so I, I don't have I don't have to publish five papers or six papers a year. So I can retake my time, I can really finish the experiment. Uh but I was at Yale and I, I seen I seen what kind of pressure they have. It is not is your 
your existence is de- depend on how many papers you publish, how many, what, you know, where to publish, how many grants you get. And, and of course, after you're getting your technician, maybe a couple of postdocs, now you're building your lab. It's not just you anymore. It is your family. It is your research family. So the pressure is unbelievable, unbelievable. Yes, that's very well said. Well, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. And we've got to keep getting the word out there about your research and uh, figure out thank ways you. to fund you. Oh, thank you. One of the thank one you. of the nice things about being out, I don't want to insult you, but being out on the fringe a little bit in a small university is, is like you said, you do have the, the freedom that you don't have uh, with the pressures of Yale or Johns Hopkins or Harvard or Stanford. Oh, I agree. I agree. And I, I, every time I finish my lecture, I first thing, this is what I'm saying. Thank you, my university, who are extremely patient and let me finish the study that we should be finished, uh, any study. Yes, I should write a thank you note to your dean. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, my, my uh, dean and my, and my president, because uh, they, are, they, are, they are really uh, supportive. I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, my, uh, also my chair uh, got Capolimias practically shutting down, practically asking to shutting down some conference, which I tried to organize. Right. And and they said no. Good they for, said no. Good for them. Now, let, so let's go ahead. Who's your chair? My chair is Dr. Roman Zajac. And your dean? Dr. Lourdes Alvarez. And the president of New Haven is uh, Dr. Stephen Kaplan. Terrific. So everybody get out your thank you cards and right away. (laughs) All right, Dr. Shapi, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And good luck with that mouse research. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was really cool. Dr. Shapi has a lot of interesting things to, interesting, brilliant things to say about biofilms and how they're, and how they affect the Borrelia bacteria. Yeah, it's a critical point, and I really hope her research continues to move forward. We talked a little bit about funding, and I have half a mind to start up a Kickstarter campaign or something like that to fund her research. And I think that's something the Lyme community really can get behind. Uh, if we all kick in a few bucks, uh, that'll make a huge difference. We got 10,000 people across the world to donate a buck, and uh, she's got uh, a, a lot of support. And it'll go $10,000 in her lab would go a long way as opposed to some of these more expensive labs and CDC stuff that where they're going for millions of bucks. Right. Now, I have a question, actually. She was talking, well... The question is about biofilms. It seems to me that the how biofilms, how the Borrelium bacteria can protect itself with biofilms is one of the main problems with not only diagnosing but also treating. Uh, Lyme disease today. and It, it is. And there, there are a couple things that the bacteria does that makes it difficult to detect and treat. Uh, it has several different forms. And that's probably why it's been around 
for millions of years. They found the bacteria in amber, encased in amber that's millions of years old. They found it in that ice man that they found in the Alps, and he's 5,300 years old. So the Lyme bacteria has been around for a very, very long time, and it's a crafty little booger. So it can shed its cell wall, and that means that antibiotics can't find it and can't kill it. It can go into a cyst form and just hide out, and then nothing can kill it, and it can't be detected. But then it also has this biofilm, which is a colony, and th- at that f- in that form, it can thrive, create lots of toxins, create lots of problems within the body, and it's also resistant to many back, uh, many anti. Biotics. Uh, there's some that may be able to cut through some of that, and there's some other treatment uh, types that can do that. Uh, liposomal herbs, liposomal uh, essential oils, or some of the essential oils themselves can cut through this this biofilm. But it's still it's very very difficult to do, and it makes the bacteria that much more virulent and troublesome. As as we all know, it's no surprise that it, this sucker's tough to kill. Right. So. Dr. Dr. Shoppy's research into how these biofilms operate and how the Borrelian bacteria operate. So it's actually going to make a huge difference in how we treat Lyme disease. It could be a huge breakthrough for the community. All right. So if you liked the episode, please leave us some feedback. And if you have some suggestions, please leave us some feedback. We're always looking to make the show better. Or what's the email that they can send us comments? You can send us comments at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. You can also visit our website and leave comments uh, on each specific podcast. We'll uh, answer as many as we can. And the website, Aurora, is... The website is LimeNinjaRadio.com. If you've detected a theme there, we're trying to keep this super simple. Yeah. (laughs) And if you search on Facebook, you can like us there, uh, leave a comment or message me. Or also, uh, the podcast is available on iTunes. And it's also available on several other services now. Uh, Zoom for Microsoft devices. It's on Stitcher, which is another uh, podcast service and a couple other ones. So it's starting to get out there a little bit. So if you search the web, you'll probably find us. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon. Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.